And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Monday edition on Tuesday of The Real Investment Show. <laughs> yeah, you know, yesterday, of course, a holiday, Juneteenth. Uh, of course, federal holiday. Markets closed yesterday. And um, actually, you know, things are kind of opening back up this morning, getting things back to work this week as we actually are pushing now towards the end of the month. It's now also the end of the quarter coming up for all the financial portfolio managers. They'll, of course, be window dressing here. Now, kind of an, an interesting wrap up to last week. Um, on Friday, of course, last week we had the Federal Reserve hiking uh, rates by 75 basis points, sent the markets into shock last week. Big sell-off, of course, on Wednesday, Thursday. And then on Friday, markets kind of stabilized a little bit, which was good news. And, of course, Friday also was that major op options expiration day. We had $3.2 trillion worth of options expire on Friday. Uh, thank goodness we had a long weekend, kind of let the markets calm down here a bit, figure things out. Now, as we move into the – now, with that behind us, we're now moving into the end of the month. Now, this is where portfolio managers are going to rebalance portfolios. They're underweight equities right now because of all the selling in the markets as of late. We have definitely seen some margin liquidations occur. So this has been one of the things, one of the areas that we've seen a lot of market margin liquidations occur, of course, has been actually in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Those have been under tremendous pressure. And really, just over the course of the last you know, few months, and, and Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies in general have given up all of their gains now for the last couple of years. Uh, if we go back, uh, cryptocurrencies now trading lower than they were actually back in 2021. So a lot of, uh, of all that gain that we saw in cryptocurrencies, that kind of got wiped out here over the last year. Been a tremendous amount of liquidations in that sentiment. Uh, cryptocurrency sentiment's now extremely bearish as well. Good news this morning, though, there's been a lot of correlation between stocks and cryptocurrencies as of late. They've pretty much been tracking each other, particularly kind of in the NASDAQ area, the, that kind of lower tier of NASDAQ stocks, a lot of those ARC type stocks, ARC fund. Uh, ETF type stocks, the more speculative ones, have been a high correlation between those stocks and what's been going on with cryptocurrencies. Of course, that makes complete sense since that, you know, the, the individuals that were chasing cryptocurrencies, a lot of young kind of retail traders chasing cryptocurrencies, as well as a lot of these ARC type innovator uh, companies, those have all gotten pretty much hammered here over the last several months. So not surprisingly that as those individuals kind of get liquidated out of the market, that those have a high correlation with each other. Now, unfortunately, a lot of damage done in that area this morning. Cryptocurrencies are trying to, to hold some support here for Bitcoin in particular. That $20,000 level has been really important support. Needs to hold on to that, trying to do that today. But that pressure, of course, has pushed, you know, a lot of the oversold conditions in cryptocurrencies, as an example, down to extremely oversold levels. We're seeing this exact same thing right now in the uh, major indexes, you know, the NASDAQ, the S&P, etc. Seeing that deep oversold condition uh, currently happening right now. In fact, if you take a look at things like sentiment, um, oversold conditions. They are at levels that were equal to 
what we saw in, during the financial crisis in 2008. So again, when you take a look at the markets, they are just about as negative and washed out as they can get. So not surprisingly here, we're probably going to get a bounce. Now this morning, futures are kind of pointing up. We're seeing the Dow up about 480 points at the moment. S&P, NASDAQ, uh, S&P's up 61 points. NASDAQ's up about 150 points or so. We're going to see a pretty strong open in the markets this morning. Now, got to be careful here because we've seen these before, right? We've seen these kind of strong openings before and then they fade out during the day because there's so many people that are trapped in this market, particularly after last week. There was kind of a lot of, of hope that, um, you know, we were going to kind of get a bottom here over a couple of weeks ago. We had a bit of a rally and, and that rally kind of consolidated a little bit and then just collapsed. Very, very sharp decline, kind of a waterfall sell-off down about 10% in just roughly a couple of days. And, and that trapped a lot of people that had, had been hoping for a rally. They bought in um, and they were hoping for this rally to, to sell into and they never got that chance. So again, any rally that we're going to get here, that's going to get met by a lot of people, what we call these trap longs. There's still a lot of trap longs in the markets. They're just looking for an exit point. So again, probably expect a rally here over the next few days. Uh, the rest of this week would not be surprising at all. But again, this is still at this point, unfortunately, we're still in that mode of these being just sellable rallies at the moment. Now, at some point that will change. When we can get our you know, kind of longer term buy signals in place and those start to actually start to show some improvement on, on a longer term basis and we start to see these longer term signals turn positive, which we have not yet, that's going to give you a better indication that you can actually put some money to work and kind of leave it there for a while. But we're not near there yet. Um, importantly, the S&P is approaching its 200-week moving average. Now, that's a very long moving average. Think about 200 weeks, right? That's almost four years. <clears throat> so it's a four-year moving average of prices. Very strong support for the S&P. That's currently right around 3,500 on the S&P right now. So again, a pullback towards that level market needs to hold that for sure. And then if we can start to turn these longer term sell signals back into buy signals, that's going to be your better opportunity to put some capital to work and leave it there for a while and start trying to bottom fish some of these stocks that have really been washed out. And again, if we take a look across the, the market, there's a lot of companies now that are trading much cheaper than they were previously. Now, one area that we have been talking about here recently in particular was about energy and energy stocks, importantly, had gotten extremely overbought and, and oil stocks had gotten well above three standard deviations, above long-term moving averages, a lot of techno mumbo jumbo, but basically oil, oil stocks because of oil prices has gotten very, very extended. Those had a huge pullback last week very, very sharp decline. And we kind of talked about this in both our, our podcast interviews that we do on Friday on our market recaps, which are on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com and also here on the show is that you're going to wake up one morning and these stocks should be down 15, 20% like that. And that's exactly what happened last week. And it doesn't give you a lot of time to react uh, to get out of stocks when they're falling that fast, but those still have more to go on the downside. We are, we are not quite done with the, the sell-off and, and potentially energy stocks, as well as the decline in oil prices. Now, they're going to bounce around here. And if you take a look at oil prices in particular, you know, those aren't going to go immediately just, you know, plunging to the downside. 
but they are going to start this process of topping and then we're going to start to see a drop in oil prices as we approach recessionary territory later this year. Uh, that's, and then, of course, because of the correlation that you have between oil prices and energy stocks, those are going to go together. So, again, that great buying opportunity we had back in November 2020 pretty much gotten that off the table. And, and that's why we've been taking profits out of energy stocks lately, reducing those positions, raising more cash. Again, we're going to get a rally in the market here short term. Still one to sell into this at this point. But eventually, this will all turn and we'll see money rotate back from those kind of defensive plays like energy back into the more offensive plays eventually on the growth side of the ledger in terms of portfolio management. So, again, lots of stuff to get into. We got, we got a lot of stuff to get into today on the show um, from Bitcoin all the way over to what's happening, um, you know, kind of in the, in the global economy. So all that's coming up on today's Real Investment Show. Stick around. We'll get to it right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday as we're just speeding through the week already. It was interesting yesterday. No traffic. Yeah, I love holidays because there's absolutely no traffic on the freeway during holidays. It was great this morning. Yeah. Everybody's sleeping in this morning. <laughs> well, they're conserving their fuel. <laughs> yeah. That could, be, that could also be the case. Good news, though. Yeah. Gas prices did drop below $5 a gallon on national average. We hit four ninety seven dollars mm -hmm. uh, over the weekend. So, you know, a little bit of good news there. Of course, it's over $6.50 a gallon in California. So, you know, if you like that kind of thing and <laughs> are willing to pay for it, you know, that's, that's kind of really what this comes down to. If you like the California attitude and as long as you're willing to pay for it, you know, don't complain about your high gas prices, right? It's just, it's just you know, a function of what you choose. You know, but this is going to be one of the things that, um, you know, we're going to have to deal with. Uh, I saw I, I watched a TED talk over the weekend. Um, I meant to, Brent, I meant to email you this this clip from it because yeah. it was really good. Um, but it was a TED talk over the weekend. So apparently the guy knows what he's talking about because it was a TED talk. Um, <laughs> good old Theodore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he's talking about combustion uh, ice engines versus EVs versus hybrids and he's talking about which ones really have a car a better carbon footprint and he makes such a great point about this and this is something that we've talked about you know before here on the show is that when you see a lot of these analysis about you know 
how an EV has a, has a lower carbon footprint than uh, an ice combustion engine. And you'll see these graphs and it'll, it'll show that, you know, starting at zero miles, right, with both cars, that the EV has clearly a much better carbon footprint than an ice combustion engine, right? And so that's, that's the premise. And so we all run out, we buy EVs if you can afford one. Because we want to save the planet. That's all great, fine, and dandy. But what, and, and the point he brings up, which is excellent, is that we forget about the inputs into the vehicle to start with. So if you look at what it costs in terms of a carbon footprint going into building a, an ice combustion engine, and you just think about what goes into you know, a, a, a nice car to build it, it cost the the carbon footprint for an EV is about twice is almost three times as much going into the vehicle to build it because batteries are very complex to build. They require a lot of energy to get the materials to build the battery, cobalt, lithium, etc. requires a lot of energy to, to, to mine. And so once you start comparing these two in terms of the inputs going into the car, it now takes, you don't get a break even between the electric vehicle and the ice combustion engine until about 90,000 miles. Now, the assumption in, in the TED Talk is that, that on average, and I know very few people other than Mr. Miyagi with his Miata over here, that drive a car 170 to 200,000 miles. But he says that most people keep a car and they drive it 170,000 miles. Again, I know very few people that do that, but let's use that number. So it takes you 90,000 miles just to break even between an electric vehicle and a ice combustion engine. Now, that data is based on a car with a 400-mile range, a, an ice combustion engine, right? Your, your regular gas power, power car has a 400-mile range versus a electric vehicle with a 125-mile range. So with those two different ranges at 90,000 miles, you break even. Once you compare a 400-mile range car, EV with a 400-mile range car, it now takes you 420,000 miles to break, almost, uh, sorry, takes you almost 400,000 miles to break even on that because of the amount of input it takes to continually recharge the car, the battery sizes, all that. So the point of the TED Talk was ultimately is that what we should be focusing on is hybrids. A hybrid works where the electric part of the car works when the engine is the most inefficient, which is where you're braking, stopping, starting, going, and just in getting moving, uh, you know, but once you get up to speed, then the combustion engine becomes much more um, emission friendly at that point and much more efficient. And once you start comparing a hybrid to either an ICE uh, engine or an EV, the clear advantage really across the board in terms of having a much better carbon footprint, being much more eco-friendly, is a hybrid. 
And it was just like I said, it was just a, a very interesting conversation and, you know, uh, a talk that he was having because we have this whole thing. It's like, hey, we want to do these things to, you know, create, you know, create a better environment, you know, save our planet and those type of things, which are all noble endeavors. Nothing wrong with that at all. But we kind of go jump off the deep end on these things and go, oh, we've got to go all EV and completely skipped over the hybrid part which actually turns out to have been the much better solution to start with. You know, Toyota's had a hybrid now with, with the Prius for years. Um, and, and, you know, the, the only problem with the hybrid, see, if, if Toyota would have come out and built a hybrid Prius to make it look like an electric, the way we're designing these electric vehicles now, which all have cool body styles and lots of LED and lights and panels and all this type of stuff, the Prius probably would have been a much better selling vehicle. The problem was is that the initial attempts at building hybrids and EVs is they were so damn ugly, nobody wanted them, <laughs> you know. Or they built them so small, like, hey, we need to build this eco-friendly environment, so we're going to build this car that looks, you know, like a Kleenex box that and, and that cross, was crossed with a clown car in the middle of in the middle of the night. You know, no, nobody would buy it. So, uh, again, those initial failures and in, in lack of foresight there, we skipped the most important part of building vehicles that were the most economically efficient and environmentally friendly. So, again, it was just a really interesting talk. So if, uh, if you happen to look that up just you know, on TED Talks, it's worth, worth listening to. If you will send me that link, we'll post it in the description of today's YouTube recording. Okay, I can do that. That way, folks can look at it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I just all I did is I have a really small clip of it, uh-huh. uh, where he's just talking about this. It's about a three-minute clip, and then you have to link through to the to the actual TED Talk itself. But we have the technology. We have the technology. We can do it. Yes, I will send that to you. Um, another thing is that we're talking about inflation. You know, talk about inflation of gas prices, obviously, and, and those things going up. The Warren Buffett lunch. Every year, Warren Buffett auctions off a charity lunch. And if you want to have lunch with Warren Buffett, everybody kind of bids on it. Um, in 2009, that lunch went for $1.6 million and pretty much hung around that level. In, in 2000, and kind of, it's interesting because it's a function of the market. Um, as an example, in 2012, we were having the debt ceiling default debate. And, of course, we were right in the midst of a manufacturing recession. This is where Japan had been shut down in ter- you know, because of the uh, tsunami, the, the earthquake that led to a tsunami, that led to the flooding, that led to you know, the, the rise of Godzilla as, as the uh, Fukushima plant was flooded and, and they had a nuclear disaster going on in Japan. And the cost of the lunch had risen to about $3.4 million and then fell during the 2013 coming out of that, that whole problem. And, of course, we were also in, in 2013, we were worrying about the uh, issue of the fiscal cliff, if you'll remember. Uh, lunch had got, gotten up to about $3.4 million and then dropped to $1 million, um, and, and that year then had began to rise again as markets were doing better. People and the markets were going up. The, the cost of the lunch was going up, got to four million in 2019. This year, interestingly enough, 2022. Now, there was no lunch in 2021 because of COVID. Uh, sorry, there was no lunch in 2020 or 2021 because of COVID, because of the lockdowns. He didn't have the lunch because obviously his age. 
you know, being a little bit cautious there. Um, so the last lunch was 4.5 million. That was in 2019. Markets were doing great. Um, this year, interestingly enough, the lunch went for $19 million, which was effectively about 50, it was four times more than the most expensive lunch before. Um, and over the course of since doing this since 2009, he's raised about $53 million for charity by doing these, uh, these lunches. And it's a charity out in San Francisco that feeds homeless people and does, you know, provides rides and these type of things. So it's, it's, it's a noble cause. But it was just interesting that this year um, he raised $19 million for the lunch, which was, you know, approaching about 40% of all the money he's raised since 2009, all in one year. So, and this is in the midst of, you know, this whole kind of economic inflation debacle we've got going on. So I guess from a cost of the, the, the inflation measure, right, <laughs> you had a, a relative increase in the price of lunch with Warren Buffett this year due to inflation. But again, it was, it was interesting because out of these lunches, you know, he's met uh, quite a few interesting people. In fact, one of the portfolio managers that now runs the portfolio for Berkshire Hathaway actually came from one of the lunches that he had. So, you know, that's, you know, this is kind of the interesting thing that comes out of this. Of course, they have this at, uh, at uh, Smith and Lewinsky, uh, Walensky's Steakhouse in New York when they do this. So it's a kind of, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Ted Weschler is the portfolio manager that came from one of the lunches. So have lunch with Warren Buffett, become a portfolio manager. Nice way to find a job. <laughs> it only cost him a couple million dollars for the interview, but if, if you buy your way into an interview, it's a write-off. It's a write-off. There you go. All right. Uh, lots of stuff to get into when we get back. Inflation, economics, recession coming up. What does it all mean? Get into that right after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. All right, let's get into uh, kind of the economy, what's going on there. Uh, you know, the Fed seems right now absolutely prepared to make a policy mistake. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of debate about this. Even Michael Leibowitz and I debate about this on a regular basis. You know, he's convinced that the Fed's going to fight inflation first. 
my opinion is, is they'll fight inflation until financial instability becomes an issue. And, and the reason is, I, I, the reason I say that, and I'm not saying that I'm right and he's wrong. I'm just saying this is my view. Inflation is going to take care of itself, right? High prices will solve high prices. If the Fed does nothing with interest rates, inflation will come down. And that's just a function of economic growth. The inflation is going to create an economic recession. And at that point, you're going to get disinflationary pressure in the economy. We're already seeing this, right? I mean, if you take a look at retail inventories, just a massive buildup in, in retail inventories right now that, you know, these companies have, have a choice. Either you sit on the inventory or ultimately you've got to discount it. And so there's going to be a lot of discounts. If you happen to, if you, if you actually have some extra cash laying around and you want to buy something in the, in the not too distant future, there's going to be some great discounts on stuff that is piled up inside of Walmart and Target, right? They just need to move it along and they're going to discount it. So the inflation issue will take care of itself if the Fed does nothing. So while the Fed's hiking rates and they're like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we need to bring down inflation to 2%. We're gonna hike rates until we do it. It sounds great in theory, but they know this as well as that inflation will take care of itself. They need to hike rates now for two reasons. One, they know a recession is coming. And the worst thing that can happen to the Federal Reserve is they get caught at zero interest rates and you have a recession. So if they do nothing, the inflationary spike is going to take care of itself because it'll trigger a recession. That's what inflation does, particularly when inflation runs above 5%. So given that the Fed's only real tool for helping try to bail out an economy that's in a recession is cutting interest rates, they've got to get interest rates up so they can cut them again. They can't go negative, so they've got to get them up to cut them. And so this is really a race against time for the Fed is... Can I lift rates enough? Can I get it to 2% so I can cut rates by 2% to help boost the economy, you know, bring mortgage rates down, bring car loans down, bring credit card rates down? Can I get it up to 2% so I can cut it so I can help spark some growth in the economy during the next recession? And the question is, is if they're hiking rates at a point where you've already got an inflationary spike that's weighing on economic growth, the question is, which comes first, the recession or the Fed getting to 2%? But it's somewhere in here, the Fed makes a mistake and they cause financial instability, and that's where they stop hiking rates. So it sounds all great in theory that, you know, these Wall Street firms are all going, yeah, they're going to hike rates to 4%. They're never going to get to 4%. They're going to be lucky to get to 2%. And the reason I say that is, is that Fed run, the Fed funds rate tends to track economic growth. And we're going to have economic growth running at about 2%. So the Fed can't get much above 2% growth before you really tank economic growth. So that's, that's, that's their neutral rate at this point is about 2%. And we'll see how we we'll see how long it takes to get there. But you know, here here's the issue: is that for the Fed, the the risk that they make a monetary policy error at this, at this point is extraordinarily high, and that's just that's just a function of the position they got themselves to. They they should have been hiking rates last year before inflation got to this point. They should have been cutting QE long ago before inflation got to this point. 
But as usual, they stay around too long. And they do things, they take things too far. Because they like the positive benefit, right? I, I like the high that I'm on when I'm taking drugs. So I keep taking drugs, I keep taking drugs, keep taking because I like being high, right? That's great. I, 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 nothing else seems to matter at that point because I like, the, I like the outcome that I'm getting. The problem is when the eventual crash comes in one form or another. And that's, and that's what the Fed ha has done is, you know, you've created an environment in, in the markets that is addicted to this monetary policy benefit and everybody likes the high that the market's on and they don't want to deal with the eventual crash and but it, you know it, it comes and we've got to deal with it and the fed is going to do that now the question is big question is that markets tend to lead these problems so the market's been correcting all year long in advance of the Fed hiking rates and the, the Fed, you know, beginning to tighten their balance sheet, right? We're down 20% by the time that the Fed actually started doing anything with tightening their balance sheet. Question is, is where does the market bottom and start to anticipate the Fed backing off of doing this and reversing policy? I doubt that's here where we are right now, but the markets are very oversold and we're due for a bounce. And it's probably a sellable rally once again. Again, as I, as I talked about in the opening of the show, there's still a lot of trap longs in this market from a variety of standpoints. And the question is, is, is that every rally you're going to get is going to be met by more selling. And the Fed's still hiking rates. The Fed's still tightening their balance sheet. So those headwinds are still there. And the question really becomes is, has that been factored into the markets enough yet for the markets to find a lasting bottom? Or is there still more downside to go? Now, in a recession, and here's the problem, in a recession, stocks fall on average about 33%. <clears throat> could be as much as 40 to 50%, depending on whether or not you trigger some type of financial event in that process. From the Fed's point of view, the markets are still positive from the 2019 peaks. So that isn't a big issue for the Fed right now because it's like, hey, markets are still positive over the last couple of years. Yeah, they've come down a little bit, but no big deal. But you get into a recession... So let's just say right now you're down about 20% for the year in the S&P. It's a little bit more, but just call it 20. <clears throat> so if you're into an average drawdown of a recessionary correction, that's going to be about 33%. So you've got another 15% to go-ish to the downside on the market. Now, that's certainly well within the context of where we could get to if, if, if a recession occurs. Now, here's the problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the time that the National Bureau of Economic Research says, oh, a recession started on X date. The recession will be over. There's a high likelihood that the, the NBR will come out and they'll say, oh, the recession that, and this will be sometime next year. In the next year, the Fed, the, the NBR will come out and say, well, the recession actually started in 
the second quarter of 2022. And, and we're like, well, you know, we didn't know that then. It's like, yeah, we did. Or third quarter or fourth quarter, wherever it is. But by the time it gets announced, it'll be too late to do anything about it. And the question is, is are and, and again, as I said earlier, the markets are already pricing in much slower rates of economic growth, much slower rates of profit growth, earnings growth, et cetera. So all that's going to get factored in and all that is getting factored in right now. The question is, is has it all been factored in? Because what the market will start to do is anticipate the Fed isn't going to be able to hike rates much more. They're not going to be able to taper much more. We're going to start getting a reversal of monetary policy. And that's where the market will eventually bottom and start to turn up. And we'll start to see our indicators becoming much more positive. You know, but right now, there's a lot of indicators that suggest that, you know, we've got a really washed out market. So a fairly strong counter trend rally, not surprising at this point. You know, you've got only 2% of stocks on the S&P above their 50-day moving average, only 12% above their 200-day moving average. Very, very low levels. Those are the type of levels you saw at the bottom of the markets in 2008. So we have a very, very, very washed out market. Okay. Has all of the economic information been factored in as of yet? And that answer is probably no. But I don't know. That's why we have to watch these indicators. We've got to watch the markets. Now, markets are three standard deviations oversold right now. That's why we talk about technicals so much here on the show, because technicals just give us a kind of a, a, a quick look at where markets are and can tell us if we're due for a reflexive rally or not. And doesn't mean that it happens today or tomorrow. We talked about this in, in the newsletter this weekend that's on the website. We said, hey, you know, are we close to a bottom? And we kind of laid out all the premises. And this morning, we're going to have a fairly decent bounce. So is this the bottom? It's probably a bottom. It's probably not the bottom for the markets. So this is a day not to sell. You know, if you're really, if you were really worried last week because of the sell-off, and you should be, this is a pretty vicious sell-off last week. You know, that's the, you know, time to, to step back and not let emotions take over and use these rallies like we get today to start making some corrections. And I would use this rally today, right out of the gate. If you if you got blasted last week and need to do something your portfolio today is a good day to do it. We might have two or three days of this. So do a little today, a little tomorrow, a little next day. Odds are we're going to retest these lows at least before this is all said and done. All right, be right back after the break. We'll wrap up the show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. 
weekend, Bitcoin dropped to about $17,000 a coin, which is a pretty dramatic drop from its high of near 70000 just earlier, you know, late last year, early this year. Now, this morning, Bitcoin's trying to trade up, reclaim that $20,000 kind of support level that it broke. And that's kind of a very important level for Bitcoin to hold. You know, and the, and the problem for cryptocurrency is, or I should say cryptocurrency traders, at least the market shuts down on Friday and you have a weekend to recoup and kind of get your thoughts together. Cryptocurrency trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's just, there's no reprieve for individuals to step back and kind of reassess what's going on. But a lot of things have been happening. The carnage in the crypto market has has been caused by a variety of factors. Part of its macroeconomic forces, part of its margin liquidations. Um, you know, a lot of young traders had bought crypto on margin. So when the price of crypto falls, then they have to sell crypto to cover margin calls, which then requires them to sell more. And then, of course, that triggers another margin call because now they have less collateral. And if it goes down just a smidge even more, triggers another margin call, and you get this very vicious kind of margin liquidation cycle. So we're definitely seeing that. Um, you're also seeing just the fact that a lot of these individuals that were trading cryptocurrency, they had in, in, you know jumped into crypto after crypto had already made a big move. And so they're running big losses on these things already. And, you know, this the, the fun of trading crypto online and dreams of being a crypto millionaire have pretty much evaporated up in smoke. And so now they're just trying to get out alive at this point. And that's very common for a, a bear market in any type of environment, right? Whether it's cryptocurrencies or whether it's stocks or whatever it is, there's a point of where, you know, I just want to get out. You know, it's interesting. There was a a gentleman, he was doing a drunken rant, you know, uh, back in 2015, and he misspelled the word hold, and he, he called it a huddle, H-O-D-L, instead of H-O-L-D, which immediately became a meme and, and became kind of the banner for cryptocurrency to hodl, right? I'm, 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 I'm a hodler. I'm just going to hold cryptocurrency, and, and they even changed the, the – instead of just being hold, I'm going to hold on to it. HODL became hold on for dear life, became the acronym for it. And so it's just basically I'm going to hold on to this stuff no matter what happens because long term I'm going to win. But, you know, that's that's always an easy concept to say when things are going up. Right. We saw a lot of this with these retail traders with stocks like, you know, um, GameStop and AMC, Bed Bath and Beyond and others, these kind of meme stocks. They were going to have diamond hands. We're going to hold these. You know, I've got diamond hands. I'm not going to sell the weak players or you know, anything. And, of course, all those stocks have lost a tremendous amount of their gains, right? So, you know, it used to be fun to hang out on Wall Street bets. Now it's just a, 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 a moratorium of <laughs> comments and obituaries of retail traders. And, and again, that's not surprising, right? This, the, the writing was on the wall in 2020, 2021, as these young retail traders were jumping into, you know, trading stocks. And, and, and we even talked about on the show one of the, the kind of 
you know, poster children was Dave Portnoy, who was the owner of of Pin Gaming and had sold it, and made a, made four hundred million dollars on the sell, and he became Barstool Sports president on Twitter, and he was talking about. And then, of course, when we shut down the economy, he had to turn his focus from gambling, sports gambling, and uh, to you know, actual stock gambling because that was the only thing you could gamble on, right? You couldn't go to a sporting event to gamble. You had to gamble on because there weren't any, right? So you had to gamble on stocks. So all these guys turned their focus that were previously sports gamblers onto the stock market. And so Dave Portnoy's literally pulling letters out of a Scrabble bag and buying stocks. It's so easy, right? I can just, you don't have to know anything about the stock market. You just draw letters out of a Scrabble bag and you buy that stock and it goes up, right? And, and that just kind of got to the point where the writing on the wall was that eventually this would all end very badly. Of course it did. Not surprising. Kathy Wood was the poster child of, of innovative investments, and you know her fund was doing fantastic until it didn't. And it was inevitable, right? If you buy companies that don't have income and revenue and fundamentals, they're not going to work, right? If you buy bankrupt companies hoping they're going to go up in price, they might for a moment, but eventually there's a reason they're bankrupt. And as is always the case, fundamentals matter. And we always forget about this, you know, in the heat of the moment where, you know, things just go up and, and I'm getting Facebook messages like, you know, you know, I'm getting ads on Facebook about why are you working? Why are you not just trading stocks online? You know, why, you know, why, why, why? And every other one of my feeds is some guy that's live streaming his trading, right? It's just, I, I'm, I'm going to trade stocks for a living, and here's my Lamborghini in my driveway that I drive. It all ends badly, always. You know, I've been, you know, I've been around for 30 years, seen this a bunch of times. <laughs> Brent and I saw this together back in the dot-com crash, right? We saw it in the financial crisis, right? These things just happen over and over again, and we never learn those lessons, right? We get to this point in the markets, and it's like, oh, this time's different because of A, B, or C. It's never different. It's always the same. And what's interesting is, is there's a lot of guys that you know are up on the media and and you know writing blogs and things. And there's there's some you know blogs that are written, and and these guys you know started investing in 2015, 2016, 20 you know, 2012, 13, they've never seen a bear market. And they're writing about, oh, just buy and hold, just be a hodler, right? Just hold on, buy and hold, invest, passive invest. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And as we find out, and this has been a great lesson, you know, being a passive investor sounds great until you lose 20, 30% of your money. Then it's not so fun anymore. And as we've talked about before, you know, you may be the most diehard passive investor and you may be sitting in your car right now or watching us online going, yeah, I'm a passive investor and I'm still holding, right? Sucks, but I'm still holding. And you'll probably be okay, right? You, it'll be okay. The problem is going to be when you don't risk manage portfolios and control those declines that you spend a lot more time getting back to even that eats into your long-term return profile. So if I'm down 30, I've got to make up 30%, right? So to make up 30%, I've got to really make up about 40% because of the, the way the math works. But then I've also got to make up the, the, the gains that I didn't get 
during that period. So if it takes me two years, as an example, or three years to make up a 30% loss, and that's being optimistic, that you can get back to even in three years. Most time it takes four to five years to recover. But just assume I can get back to even in three years. Well, that's three years worth of whatever gain I was supposed to have. So if I was supposed to be making 6% a year, well, that's another 18% compounded that I didn't get. So that's really about you know 21 22% that I need to add on top of the 30%, which now gets my break-even point out to about six years, which means there's an additional three years at 6% that I didn't get. i got to add that in. And, and see, here's the problem is that you actually never catch up. You never get back to that point to where your financial plan that was originally done in 2020 and said you just need 6%, you, you don't get back there. Because once you get behind that curve, and this is the same problem that pension funds have and why they're so vastly underfunded, is that once you're behind that curve on the years of gains you didn't get, you don't ever actually catch up. You're always running behind trying to get back to even according to your financial plan. And this is the big problem with average rates of return and actual rates of return. Yes, the, the index may return an average of 6% a year, but your actual return is going to leave you in a deficit because the declines and the way that averages work out, the declines set you back and you don't ever quite catch up to where you needed to be. And just about the time you get there, if you do, you have another big decline again. And so that and that's really that, that's really the problem with investing in general is that and, and not managing risk. And, and the whole idea of buy and hold and passive indexing is fine. Nothing wrong with it. You'll get an average rate of return. But whatever your financial plan was, you're not going to get there. Because of the way the math works. But this goes back to, you know, what's happening in the cryptocurrency markets, what's happening in the stock market, you know, all these types of uh, all these types of beliefs, right? That things are just going to go in one direction, that markets can only go up because the Fed's doing this and the Fed's doing that. Well, and that certainly seemed to be the case, except the Fed's not doing quantitative easing anymore. They're actually reversing their balance sheet. The Fed is now hiking interest rates, not keeping rates at zero. Everything that was driving this retail movement in the markets into cryptocurrency and stocks and all this other stuff is now being reversed. And so expecting markets to recover immediately is a bit of a long shot here until the Fed breaks something. The problem is, is that by the time the Fed realizes they broke something and start reversing their policy, markets are probably going to be lower. Just something to keep a focus on. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Futures up about 400 on the Dow. NASDAQ up about 161. S&P's up about 40 right now. Giving up a little bit of their early morning gains. We'll see if that can uh, kind of strengthen here before we open the market this morning. Look for a bounce today. Be sure and sell into this bounce over the next day or two. Don't know how long it's going to last. Suspect we retest lows sooner than later. Three minutes of markets uh, and money are coming up here in a few minutes, and we're going to cover this in a bit more detail there. That'll be on the website this morning before the market opens. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow. Um, 
for Wednesday's edition of the Real Investment Show right here at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.